Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. Uh, today I have a special guest, Eric Drazer of StopImperialism.org and writer for Counterpunch and host of the Counterpunch podcast. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to uh, follow up on our really fun chat of a few weeks ago on my show. Yeah, it was a it was a fun chat. It was also a, a revealing and s- s- kind of scary chat as we were realizing what you know what could be the potential of um, of all these different pieces coming together with the Trump administration. Uh, we discussed you know the neocons that were circling Trump how they would end up landing in the Trump administration. Um, And we're already two weeks in, and this is, I mean, I don't know if you feel the same way I do, but this is far worse and way more intense than I was expecting um, going into this. I did not realize that this was, and it almost appears to me that this is intended to shock and confuse at least on some level, the left, um, you know, even down to him censoring, uh, you know, National Park Service employees from using social media. You know, it seems like a minor thing, but there's all these little things that Trump has done so far to enrage people on the left leaning side of the spectrum, you know, already two weeks into his presidency. And I just want to know what your general feeling is of what this has been like for you um, just two weeks in. Well, I think that uh, what you're getting at is something pretty important, and I don't think that it's an accident. And and I guess I'll start off by saying anybody who believes that uh, Trump and Trump's team are just uh, winging it and that they're just buffoons that don't know what they're doing, really not paying attention. In fact, I think this is very well orchestrated and that I think this is pretty well thought out. And I think part of what we need to understand is that much of the energy, much of the support, much of the base that really propelled Trump into the White House is rooted in a in a concept that is difficult for, for many of us to, to wrap our heads around, but it is almost intuitive and instinctive for his base, and that is the notion of oppression. The idea that Trump and white people and white America and good old-fashioned, you know, down-to-earth white picket fence, you know, Uh, Americans are under attack, that they are oppressed, whether it's the quote-unquote liberal media or whether it is political correctness or whether it is, you know, any number of economic, political, social issues that are oppressing them. And so one of the things that we're witnessing, I think, is a message being sent by Trump and by the administration that I'm going to fight for you. You elected me and I'm going to push back against all of this oppression. And you see that time and time again, Trump and his team are making themselves into the victims, victims of everything from CNN and fake news and propaganda to victims of uh, left wing agitators and everything under the sun. And it's always it rooted in this relationship of uh, perpetrator and victim. And isn't it interesting how the president of the United States with his finger on the nuclear button with more power under him than under any any other individual in the world is still able to present himself as a victim, as somebody who is being oppressed. That, I think, is a very interesting, very calculated move and something that I think most people are overlooking. That's a that's a really interesting point. I, I, I haven't really thought about it that way before, but, you know, 
most people see what you're describing as Trump is is too thin skinned. He's so narcissistic that he cannot, you know, let something roll off of him. Oh, and that's true, too. I'm not suggesting that's not true. That's part of it. But I don't think that it's all just that. No, I I agree with what you're saying. I I think with someone like Bannon, you know, the guy behind uh, Breitbart for, I don't know, however many years back, I mean, on some level, he must be able to see that. And it's I know I don't want to call what he what Trump is doing a form of coded racism when he does that, but it, it it there's a bridge there because he can you know it's almost like I'm just this you know poor white guy who's being you know assaulted from all sides or something. It it has there's lines that you can draw from what you're talking about to this sort of you know and i on and i want to make sure i let the listeners know that you coined this term the white identity politics um sort of victimhood um but we we can we can talk about that more later or unless you want to talk about it now sure i mean look I, the term white identity politics i used uh, it's a uh, it's in the title of a cover story uh cover story is not the right word but featured article i guess you could say uh in the current issue of counterpunch magazine which i'll just plug here for people if you're not familiar with counterpunch it's in my opinion one of the best uh, publications on the left they do a print magazine uh subscription to that you can get the current issue that has my article donald trump and the triumph of white identity politics and the it's rooted in this in in I guess what I was just alluding to this notion that uh, it is it is white identity now they won't call it that but that's ultimately what it is that is connecting all of these people if you think back over the over a number of decades there was very little that was really shared in common between the uh, you know the Irish Catholic in New York City the Southern Baptist in Georgia the you know the the evangelical Christian Methodist or whatever in Kansas. They shared very little in common, but it is Donald Trump and this recent phenomenon that actually has brought them together under the banner of shared oppression. That is how they view themselves. They view their identity, America as they know it, as under assault, under assault from immigrants, under assault from Muslims, under assault from political correctness, from liberals, uh, from, from gays, from, you know, you name it. It is under assault and it is that shared oppression or what researchers call entitativity. That is to say that that, that which creates the feeling of a shared communal uh, uh, attitude. That is what we've witnessed. And that's something I think very uh, dangerous and certainly overlooked. And I think sociologists and political, uh, you know, political analysts and others need to be considering this fact. And let me, if I could just illustrate that with one example, there is what I would consider a myth circulating since the uh, since election day, namely that Donald Trump was propelled into the White House by a reaction against neoliberalism, by the coalescing of a working class block in favor of Donald Trump against the neoliberal warmonger Hillary Clinton. Now, while that ex- explanation certainly is convenient and certainly uh, buttresses a lot of narratives that many people would like to believe, the reality is that the 
data doesn't show that. In fact, if you look at the data concretely, Donald Trump actually dominated Hillary Clinton in the vast majority of affluent and wealthy communities and wealthy voting districts, something like 85 to 90 percent of the wealthiest voting districts in the country went for Donald Trump, not Hillary Clinton. This is not to say that there weren't billionaires on Wall Street and many others who are backing her. Of course they were. But if you get to the petty bourgeoisie, those who are actually in those communities, they overwhelmingly supported Trump. Now, is that working class? Of course not. Rather, what it is, it is white identity. That is what connects the, the wealthy, you know, white person in suburban Virginia outside of Washington, D.C. with the poor whites in Mississippi or in the Central Valley of California or wherever it might be. And that shared feeling of oppression, that's what's bringing them together. That's what propelled Donald Trump into the White House. And that's what he's exploiting even in the White House. I mean, anybody watch uh, Sean Spicer's uh, press conferences? The man stands there like he's under attack from the media. I mean, this is the spokesperson for the president of the United States, and he acts like he's playing the role of victim. What does that tell you about how they have exploited this unique position they've created? Uh, I mean, it's it is really fascinating. Um, he's, you know, I thought that the, the uh, press secretaries under George W. Bush were the most defensive that I'd ever seen until this guy came in. I mean, <laughs> I mean, he really does beat. Fleischer, um, who's the other guy uh, that wrote that tell-all book? Uh, it's kind of uh, a heavyset guy. I forgot his name under Bush. I forget. I, I know that I remember when the Fox News guy Snow ended up being the press secretary, and I there was one in between there. I don't remember. Yeah, and then uh, Dana Perino was the last one, and then she yep, ended up yep. doing a reverse Tony Snow going to Fox News after she was press secretary. Oh, I thought you meant surviving cancer. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. It's it's not nice, but whatever. <laughs> Fuck them. Yeah, no, these people are horrible yeah, people. They're scumbags. <laughs> Fuck them. Um, but this, so, there, and there were several issues that Trump threw out there to try to you know, one of them was this sort of anti-war contingent in the United States. And I use, I almost want to put brackets or quotes around anti-war because, and honestly, um, from the way I saw it, you know, there was mostly a left-wing um, resistance against the Iraq war um, during the Bush era, you know, it, and then it became ma sort of mainstream to, to go against the Iraq war at a certain point. But then the Afghanistan war became a topic of discussion among more right-leaning libertarian people under the Obama administration because he decided to, you know, add more troops to Afghanistan and I think something like 70,000 troops. So it became sort of like a right-wing political football. But the, but the anti-war argument wasn't this is immoral, this is wrong. It became what what is this benefiting us? Where how are we um you know, we're not winning there. Um, this is costing too much money. It was that argument was never based in it's immoral to invade Afghanistan and occupy it for this long for virtually no reason, you know, no a coherent reason. Um, and I and from that, to me, that's where Trump's anti-war talking point sort of came from that mentality, which ta which again taps into this sort of 
not necessarily white nationalism, but the economic nationalism, you know, whatever you want to call what Trump's sort of economic approach is, where it's like, we need to help our country first. We don't, you know, no, we don't, why are we spending all this money and wasting all these resources on these people in Afghanistan? Um, and I'm wondering, do you feel that that's what Trump is tapping into? Yes, absolutely right. And um, I would go one step further in saying that what Trump is really tapped into is a very, um, I think, insidious undercurrent uh, of the so-called anti-war contingent, uh, specifically on the right. And this was rooted for at least the, the, the previous two election cycles leading up to 2016 in the uh, in the grassroots support for Ron Paul. Now, I'm not suggesting that, you know, everything about Ron Paul makes him disgusting or whatever, but I am saying that it is it is it is in the nature of uh, right-wing anarcho-capitalist or libertarian politics to see war in terms of its costliness, to see war in terms of you know uh, economics and uh, whether you know basically weighing uh, you know. Uh, benefits versus costs and stuff like that, obviously removing it from the question of morality, uh, removing it from the questions of imperialism and capitalism and all of those issues that really I think are, are rooted in the at least hundred year, if not longer, uh, history of the left and, and, and the left struggle against those forces. So, um, really what Trump has been able to do is he's been able to consolidate very disparate forces on the far right, including the Ron Paul libertarian contingent, uh, and, and, and essentially create what amounts to a powerful voting block of the reactionary right in the United States. And that uh, quote-unquote anti-war, and I think you're correctly uh, noting that it's not really anti-war, but, you know, for lack of a better term, quote-unquote anti-war sentiment, being able to then uh, incorporate that into a broader narrative, one that is, I think, really rooted in the notion that uh, America is great, America is, uh, you know, heaven-sent, but that it has lost its way, and that if it could only just get back to its roots, that would quote unquote make America great again and part of making America great again is uh pulling away from this idea that we should sacrifice our treasure and our precious precious uh young men uh to fight and die for the benefit of what just a bunch of Muslims a bunch of Arabs a bunch of you know whatever you know fill in the blank this is really I think the nature of so-called anti-war ideas on the right and uh I, I don't know if there's a better illustration than Alex Jones Alex Jones in many ways sort of bridges the gap between Ron Paul, who he you know, vigorously backed in 2008 and 2012, to Donald Trump in 2016, essentially delivering a huge voting block of millions of people right into the arms of Donald Trump. Never mind the fact that Trump is who he is, that he has no compunction about waging wars, about, you know, warmongering against China, Iran, and all sorts of other people threatening to send the military to Mexico like he's, you you know, James K. Polk and, you know, fighting Santa Ana or something. I mean, this is who Donald Trump is, and yet he's able to to galvanize this movement, and it's not by accident. 
And and let me just make one other point. The notion that we're talking about this right-wing anti-war uh, or maybe anti-foreign entanglements uh, viewpoint, that is textbook white supremacist, white nationalism in this country for decades. They've been talking about that. This is nothing new. David Duke and, and people like him, they've been, they've been tooting that horn for a long time. So Again, I would raise the F word here, fascist. We need to be comfortable with that word because it really is, I think, important to, to, to use it appropriately when discussing Donald Trump. And if you look at the textbook fascism that we know, the synthesis of left and right, the synthesis of these left-wing economic nationalist ideas with far-right uh, sociocultural concepts, that's what Donald Trump is doing. That's textbook fascism, my friends. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, uh, I myself was hesitating using the word leading up to all this because I saw the mainstream media um, latching onto it, and that kind of made me cringe because it was, you know, it seemed like they were using it for the wrong reasons, and I still think that they were. But what you're describing, um, there are. There are more similarities in these other ways to fascism that I don't think people made enough light of um, in in this relationship between the corporatocracy and the U.S. government is now on a level that, you know, I mean, obviously you remember how outraged people were about Bush and Cheney's oil ties, you know, um, their uh, their ties to military defense contractors, all their business ties. But this eclipses anything in the Bush administration. Do you think that that's accurate to say? Yeah, I do. And I, I think that this is an important line of inquiry as well, because I know that there are people out there maybe even listening right now to what we're saying and going, whoa, 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 wait a second, jerk. Obama administration was filled with Wall Street ghouls. The Obama administration was intimately connected to all of those same forces. So how are you going to say that Bush and Trump are the bad guys and Obama's uh, somehow escapes that criticism? No. False. He does not escape that criticism. It is 100% correct to point out that the revolving door between uh, Wall Street and Washington was certainly in play under the Obama administration, and not just Wall Street. Big pharma, big agriculture, the you know the the biotech companies, you know uh, the agri firms, all the rest of them, intimately connected with the Obama administration as well. But there was something there is something unique in what we're seeing now taking shape under Donald Trump, wherein it's no longer simply a revolving door. It's now nakedly and transparently removing the barrier between those two where you literally have corporate uh, you know, CEOs in charge of the U.S. government. First of all, Rex Tillerson, obviously, the Secretary of State. I mean, this is a man whose entire career has been at ExxonMobil, the, one of the world's biggest uh, energy companies. Obviously, this is a transparent indication that U.S. policy, U.S. foreign policy is rooted not only, of course, in uh, oil and oil profits, but in economic motivations in this in 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 seeking profit anywhere it can be found. And you can see that, of course, in Donald Trump's comments about, you know, stealing Iraq's oil. I mean, to be to be so nakedly transparent about that, I think that is something 
different. That is something unique. That's something that we haven't seen even under the Bush administration, where at least they had the decency to pretend like that wasn't the case. Uh, in this case, it's something I think unique. Secondly, of course, that's uh, Goldman Sachs. There are people out there, including Pam and Russ Martins, who run very, uh, very important website. I, I recommend people follow closely called Wall Street on Parade, and uh, I believe they're the ones who coined the term. Although maybe someone else did. Uh, that the Trump administration really should be called Government Sachs because if you look at uh, the key uh, people in the administration running economic policy, they are all Goldman Sachs people, from Steve Nushin, who is obviously the uh, incoming Treasury Secretary, to uh, Gary Cohn, who is now uh, uh, going to be leading the National Economic Council. This is the sitting president of Goldman Sachs, now in the key uh, uh, administrative position over uh, overseeing economic policy. We can go further, of course, Steve Bannon, the chief strategist and, and fascist guru for Donald Trump and from Breitbart in his career before Breitbart was a Goldman Sachs banker. He is tied to the Goldman Sachs vampire squid, as Matt Taibbi famously called it. I mean, there are actually many more, including the incoming head of the SEC, that is the principal regulatory body in the U.S. government that is now going to be run by a Goldman Sachs employee, specifically a Goldman Sachs, uh, I believe he was a general counsel in Goldman Sachs, one of their top legal advisors. So in effect, what you're now seeing is, for lack of a better word, the, the, the uh, taking over, or maybe a better way to say it would be a Wall Street coup over the U.S. government, wherein Donald Trump is the public face of what amounts to a government run by Goldman Sachs. Yeah, what, I mean, what you're saying about this is naked and out in the open, that's, that's the one major difference between this and the, and the Bush administration and just the amount of it. I mean, it, it dwarfs. Um, the Bush administration, I mean, the, the net worth of the people who are taking these positions, um, I, I don't remember the exact figure, but it, I mean, it blew away any previous administration. How much? They're all billionaires. Yeah. They're all billionaires. So that's, I mean, that's very disturbing um, just on, you know, on that level. Um, and I'm, you know, and when you go back to Trump saying things like he wants to steal Iraq's oil, you know, why didn't we get the oil? Um we can assume now that he's going to try to make good on that promise eventually because he already made good on several other crazy promises he made, like killing terrorist families, um, yeah. you know, killing uh, the eight-year-old, was it Anwar Awlaki's daughter? Yes. Or, okay. So he killed her. The son was killed by Obama and the daughter has now been killed by Trump to really uh, complete the circle there. Which on the surface level, you're thinking, oh, maybe, you know, maybe this is a drone strike. It's collateral damage. But part of you has to wonder, was this an intentional targeted assassination of oh, a I, quote unquote yeah. <laughs> terrorist's family? I think there's no doubt about that. I, I, I don't think that there's any question that that was uh, deliberately a, a deliberately designed attack in order to send a message that Trump is, you know, no nonsense, right? That he's taken the gloves off, that when he says he's going to fight terrorism, he means it. And, uh, you know, killing an eight-year-old girl is, is, is certainly a way of sending that message. It's, it's the way that a, that a ruthless fascist dictator would send a message, really. Yeah, and I think... Um I, I'm. Uh, I, I think it might have been Samuel Oakford who wrote this. I don't. I don't remember where I saw it, but somebody who follows a lot of the drone strike casualties right now 
wrote that in another drone strike um, that Trump authorized, they killed the groom of someone, a bride that was killed in an Obama drone strike, which is also kind of implies he is targeting the terrorist families directly. Um, so, well, and, and, and you have to wonder, too, if, if part of it is not only about killing these individuals, but part of it is in connecting his policies to Obama's policies so that, it, in effect, he's able to shield himself from criticism by every time it happens saying, whoa, wait a second, Obama did this. So I'm really just continuing what Obama was doing. So why don't you all calm down, liberals? And that goes right back to his, which we haven't discussed yet, his Muslim ban. Um, he, he used the same shield with that. And that was the talking point that they sort of weaponized and put out there that, oh, this is just, these are just the same countries that Obama, you know, we just used his list. What did we do wrong? Um, and, but going back to... It's, it's rather brilliant, actually, if, I mean, if you really think about it. I mean, it is because, you know, as you and I have been seeing all over social media and I see you, you know posting and, and, and arguing with people quite well, I might add, about this line of logic that people keep trying to shove in there, which is, well, wh where were you complaining, you know, when Obama was doing this, but Obama yeah. did this, you know, Hillary would have started World War III. Aren't you happy that Trump is there instead? I mean, there's all these different things that people will throw in there that yeah. act like, you know, and I, I'm not saying that these people aren't anti-imperialist, you know, people, but a lot of them seem very phony when that's still what they're harping about now, um, you know, two weeks in, when we've already seen how much damage this president is capable of. So what is your response um, to those people who are still bringing Obama up every time you criticize Trump and trying to connect a line back to his own policy, which I, I mean, there are plenty of... Uh, legitimate reasons to criticize Obama's foreign policy. It's uh, very important to point that out, but yet people are using it as a deflection method away from what Trump is doing now. So speak on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a couple of things. First of all, in, in addressing it just from a personal perspective, when people say that, I say, Really? Where was I? I was organizing anti-war actions. I was involved with multiple movements. I was organizing against austerity measures. I was uh, speaking out, starting a blog, running three different podcasts, making media. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, so that that criticism, I suppose you could use on your typical liberal, but that doesn't work on uh, somebody like me or many of the activists and radicals that I associate with. So for me, it's sort of a, it's kind of a hollow uh, criticism, but when they use it in a more general term, I think it is rather insidious because it is a way of, if I could start with the end product of that, it is a way of upholding Trump's left flank. Because ultimately, when you use that kind of a deflection, what you're essentially saying is that Trump isn't so bad, he's not any worse than anything that came before. And I think that objective material analysis would indicate that is false. I think we clearly see in, in many examples of how Trump is demonstrably worse than Obama, who in some ways was demonstrably worse than Bush. So if, and I'm not, you know, 
it's that's debatable, and I, I don't want to get into the specifics of who was better or worse. But my point is simply that I think that what we're rather seeing is the continuity of empire, the way in which it seamlessly transitions from one administration to the next. That's certainly been the trajectory throughout my political life, and pro, and certainly of multiple generations who came before us. So that's really what we're witnessing. And those people who say, "Yeah, but Obama," "Yeah, but Hillary." You have to ask yourself, at what point do you stop saying that? Because I remember in 2000, in early 2009, when Obama was inaugurated, how many liberals were saying, whoa, whoa, yeah, I mean, yes, okay, Obama did just support a right-wing coup in Honduras, but wait a second, it's not any worse than what Bush was doing, right? <laughs> I mean, come on, we know, like, Bush was worse, so, okay, let's, let's lay off the guy, let's give him a chance. You see, there is this continuity of the rhetoric, but it's now flipped. The people who are saying that are not the same people who were saying it in 2009. And that's something that's, I think, unique. And I think it points to probably a number of phenomenon, including what I would consider the cognitive infiltration of the left, the, co- the, the, the cognitive infiltration of anti-imperialism, such that you have found that many people who take uh, what I would consider to be, uh, you know, well who take an anti-imperialist position, whether practically or just nominally, who find themselves aligned with far-right-wing reactionaries and propping up the the, the far-right-wing reactionary narrative. So we see that, in, for example, in Syria, where you have left-wing, anti-war, anti-imperialist activists who are basically standing side by side with far right wing fascists in defense of the Syrian government. Now, I'm not suggesting that that means that defending the Syrian government is is necessarily 100% wrong, nor am I suggesting that 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 calling for regime change is a good thing or anything like that. What I'm saying is that the alignment of forces points to a more deeply rooted phenomenon on the anti-war side of the argument such that there is in my view a crisis within anti-imperialism, within anti-war, with this infiltration, where in 2002 and 2003, when I was really beginning my political work in, in organizing against the Iraq war and organizing against the Bush administration, I didn't see that. I mean, that that really wasn't there. The, the, the issue at that time was the liberal and Democratic Party co-optation of resistance, which is exactly what we're seeing now. But in addition to that, we also have this right-wing infiltration, such that, in my view, anti-imperialism and the anti-war movement it doesn't really exist. It's it's really just kind of this this very um, you know uh, uh, isolated and balkanized uh, block of people who can't even get their heads around uh, a concrete narrative, let alone a coherent analysis. Yeah, I mean it. It is very s- strange. I mean, and I and I've seen this over time. That it, I mean, it actually does seem like there has been an erasure of the anti-war movement on the left to the point where some of these Trump supporters are actually able to gain some kind of upper hand by, by using that argument and by playing off, off that because, um, you know, people like you and I, we know where we were and we know that we were anti-imperialism even during the Obama administration, but most of these people can act like 
there there weren't any of us because in reality we were a, you know a, a relatively small percentage of the larger left and what that megaphone was during the Obama administration so i feel like it you know and i still see people using it all the time um and it it's really frustrating because you know those of us who remain consistent um you know, I hate to use a phrase like this, but it's like we're not rewarded for remaining consistent. We're more just lumped into this other sector of, you know, the left or or whatever um, of being, you know, oh, we were just, you know, we we weren't really speaking out under the Obama administration. because, And I think, you know, and I do blame the left, you know, partly for that because, for sure. because they helped minimize and destroy the anti-war movement i mean uh, yeah not the i mean liberals i mean yeah, you know yeah. it, it's not quote unquote the left I mean, that's not really the left liberals i mean we all yes. know what that is i mean it's the center right really it's the far right the far right are the conservatives the center right are the liberals the extreme radical fascist right is the far right now so i mean everything everything has shifted right to the point where i mean yes uh, what 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 i would consider left is um I mean, it's 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 minuscule. Uh, it's it's minuscule to the point of almost being irrelevant, and that's what's uh, that's the crisis that we face. Because um, I, I mean, how do you build how do you build a movement when seemingly everyone around you is way to the right of where you are? It's very you know, difficult. And, and, yeah. And, and, and the other thing, the other thing that I want to say too is that. Um, this is another interesting phenomenon that that I've observed over the last couple of months, namely that those people who were able to be, you know, consistent in their criticism of Obama, and this is not everybody by any means, but but there is a segment of those people who were consistent in their criticism of Obama have immediately reverted into this this sort of lesser evil rationale. Like in other words, you know, they rejected they rejected Bush and they rejected Obama for all of their crimes. And now that Trump has come along, all of a sudden, you know, you 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 criticize Trump and they say, what do you what do you like, Hillary? It's like, whoa, what, how, how did that just come about? I mean, you know, for speaking for myself personally, I was really convinced that Hillary would be the president, that she is really where I focused most of my venom, most of my criticism and most of my energy uh, throughout the election campaign. Because from my perspective, I was trying to prepare to build an anti-war uh, movement against Hillary Clinton and mobilize something in anticipation of her taking power. And it didn't happen. And all of a sudden, I saw this switch get flipped where all of these people or a lot of these people who had been, you know, standing with me against Obama, all of a sudden, it's like I never did any work. It's like I never said anything about Hillary. I never wrote anything. I didn't write dozens of articles. I didn't attack her for every single crime that she's committed from Honduras and Latin America to Libya to Haiti and way beyond that. It's like none of that ever happened because as soon as I attack Trump, it's like, what do you want, Hillary? What do you want, World War III? Come on. Do these people not understand the the consistency of criticizing um, the the imperialist system, regardless of who's in charge of it? I mean, it's 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 just. But I mean, at the same time, I do feel like part of it is a tro it's a trolling method. I mean, a lot of it feels phony to me on a certain level, and I feel like the alt right in general, 
are you know a lot of them are master trolls um they've been you know trolling for the pretty much their whole adult lives on the internet and i see a lot of that as just another form of that but some of it i also think is are people who are maybe misguided you know people who might consider themselves leftists who got sucked in into this um and who kind of got played by some of this rhetoric how did they get played in other words what was the method how what was the method by which those left i understand the alt right people and whatever you know the all of that stuff but those people who would typically consider themselves on the left how do you see them that they got played because i have a couple of i have a couple of ideas on that and they're very unpopular putting out this little anti-war worm on a hook and kind of throwing it out there is the only thing i can think of but what is what's your theory I think one of them is the infiltration of uh, of anti-war and anti-imperialist discourse by Russian media. I think that RT has been tremendously successful in creating an alternative for a lot of people. I mean, obviously, your sister knows it well. I know it well as I was a regular guest on RT for a number of years uh, until I, you know, very publicly made a number of uh, – very, uh, let's say, unpopular positions for people in the Kremlin and their propaganda. Um, but I see, I see a lot of people who get all of their news, all of their information, and all of their analysis from RT, from Sputnik, from a number of other sources that are in in various ways associated with that orbit. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who, you know, in the grand scheme of the world, that's not a lot of people. But in terms of the online narratives, online discourse, it's actually rather influential and uh if you look at the coverage from rt over the last uh 12 to 18 months it's been glowing for trump i mean it, it rt in many ways and sputnik certainly as well essentially uh uh functioned as more or less donald trump's pr machine now they took many forms some of which was just a vehement anti-clinton uh coverage which is obviously welcome and warranted and everything uh you know said about hillary is well not everything but most of the substantive things said about hillary are certainly true but if you look at the balance of coverage and if you look at the way in the the let's say the aggregate impact of that it created a narrative in which Donald Trump was clearly and unmistakably something different and a lesser evil, a maverick, an anti-establishment figure. All of these tropes that that, that really went into the, the, the mythologizing over Donald Trump, uh, RT and Russian media played a very significant role. And, and I don't think that should be understated. If you look at RT's media presence online, for example, it's huge. There's a huge following. There's a lot of people within the anti-war movement, anti-imperialism, etc., who will endlessly uh, share RT videos and and whatever some of them good some of them not so good but my point is that it 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 carved out a niche for itself such that when this election cycle came around i think it had a very significant impact it's particularly among those segments that you and i are discussing here yeah i i agree with you in part in in this russian media um theory uh the only place i would differ with you on is um it seems like, you know, there's all these different Russian media outlets now. There's Sputnik, there's Russia Insider, there's the Duran, um, and then there's RT America, there's RT International. And on the RT America side of it, you know, just talking about that, um, there's a lot of, you know, I don't want to call them generic Democrats, but, you know, more Democrats uh, who, yep. have, who have a lot of shows on there. And, you know, in terms of the 
you know, the, I, I agree with you on the on the Hillary bashing, um, but I didn't see, you know, I didn't see very much overtly pro-Trump stuff coming from certain sectors of Russia media. But now that he's in office, um, I have noticed a drastic change in, you know, some of the ones that maybe were soft on Donald Trump before are now very pro-Donald Trump, um, specifically uh, Russia Insider. Um, it is actually now running articles that are blatantly like alt-right um, type, you know, type of writings. Um, they just ran a Stephen uh, Crowder video and said, watch Stephen Crowder destroy a leftist, you know, and I was thinking that's, that's odd. That's something they wouldn't have done before the election. So um, there's definitely, there's definitely something to what you're saying. Um, and I mean, you know, and we talked about this on our last discussion that Infowars um, also played a, a, a huge role in that too, because there are people on the left who somehow can glean some anti-imperialist, valuable anti-imperialism stuff still from Infowars? I don't know how that's possible still, but I but I've seen it myself. Um, so well, let me let me let me address that point. And I, I guess I should have probably used this disclaimer before I said the last my last comments. Uh, but I am not at all playing into this ridiculous McCarthyite, you know, Russia behind every corner, Russia, you know, the 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 ever-present and ominous boogeyman rhetoric that the Democrats have trotted out as a way of explaining away Hillary Clinton's stunning collapse and 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 utter humiliation. Uh so I'm not pushing any of that narrative at all. What I'm telling you is from my own personal experience having been on Many of those platforms, be they RT America, RT International, Sputnik, Russia Insider, all of these other, all of these other platforms, I've been on all of them uh, in various capacities. And I can tell you that they all share a common political line. RT America is something slightly different because RT America is specifically targeted at an American audience. Uh, the rest of them are not. The rest of them are targeted at an international audience, some of which is American, so a lot of which is European and uh, other English-speaking you know, uh, areas of the world. And so they have different functions. RT America, I've been in their studios a, a couple of times. You know, It's a totally different staff, totally different set of producers, much more in tune with the, you know, the, the pulse of American culture, American media, American you know, social value, whatever, whatever. You know, that's why you can have a Tom Hartman and Ed Schultz, uh, 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 the whatever, Ventura and the other person on, on, on watching the Hawks or whatever, you know, these different shows and they do some very good work. I'm not suggesting they don't. So that's one thing. But if you actually look at market share, you look at viewership, RT America is tiny in comparison to RT International. RT International is really the flagship here. And they're the ones that are really pushing this pro-Trump, pro-right-wing, pro-fascist narrative. And it's not exclusive to Donald Trump. Go back and look at their coverage of the refugee issue in Europe in late 2015. That was, the, that was what uh, really uh, broke me away from them completely and why I was no longer invited on any of their programs because they were promoting an openly racist, openly xenophobic narrative and propping up 
rhetorically and with their propaganda, propping up far right wing political forces all throughout Europe. Uh, obviously, Brexit and Nigel Farage and the UKIP party is one example. Marine Le Pen, who still gets glowing coverage from RT, who is, you know, the far right wing likely next president of France, we should say. Of course, the PVV the, the, of Geert Wilders and the uh, Islamophobic racist party in the Netherlands, the Yabik Nazis of Hungary. Uh, I mean, you can point to a number of other uh, uh, political forces in Europe, the AFD, uh, Pegida in Germany. They have had positive coverage on RT, which has endlessly promoted this complete myth of uh, refugees and migrants flooding into Europe and upsetting the cultural fabric and destroying society and attacking Christianity and whatever. You know, this is this is very real. And I, I think that people need to be less afraid to speak publicly and openly about the impact that has not only on our discourse, but even on our politics. And I think you're alluding to something very important. A lot of the people who depend on RT and Russian media for coverage are also depending on Alex Jones and Infowars. They also listen to David Icke. They also follow David Duke. They follow Alexander Dugin, the Russian fascist philosopher. Many other elements that really come together into this shitstorm of far right nonsense yeah i mean i agree i agree with what you're saying about um the the need to you know make light of that and that's and that's been difficult for me because of all that anti-russian hysteria coming from the democrats it's exactly i was you know i don't want to play into that but at the same time i've seen stuff on rt international that horrified me you know that was that like was rape fugees calling them rape fugees. I didn't see that myself, but I, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, if I had seen that, I would have been pretty, pretty disgusted. And, you know, it's disappointing to me that after Trump got in office, I'm now, you know, I've, I've kind of, um, you know, had some ongoing open channels of communication with some of the people from RT international. And after Trump got in, a lot of them are pretty much just fully defensive of Trump. Now they've, they yeah. very much, are into him and it's it's disappointing to me um you know and that's putting it lightly but the this whole idea we didn't talk very much about you know we we talked a lot about the mentality that sucked people in of thinking trump is quote unquote anti-war but i wanted to talk about you know some of the things that he's actually done so far whether it be saber saber rattling or, you know, putting pieces into place for future wars. And, you know, we were, on our last discussion, we were talking about war with Iran being one of the most horrible, um, you know, possibilities under a Trump administration. I don't even think the idea of war with China even came into my, you know, thought process at all. Comment on the Iran saber-rattling, the China, you know, saber-rattling, and even this Mexico threat. It's it's incredible that we even have to go down this path, but it's true. Uh, when we had our conversation on my show uh, a number of weeks ago, I guess it was like two weeks after the election, um, 
you know, we, we talked about war with Iran and we talked about it in the context of, uh, you know, what's really your bread and butter recently, uh, neocon infiltration of the uh, Trump administration. And at the time, I believe John Bolton was being floated as a potential secretary of state. John Bolton's name had come up consistently. And I think that for a lot of people in the establishment and uh, those who are in various ways in uh, the Trump orbit, I think that Bolton was just a poor salesmen for what they wanted, but ultimately the ideological orientation was correct. And uh, so when we were talking about that, you know, we were talking about potential war against Iran being on the table once again, certainly the uh, tearing up, uh, or at least an attempt to tear up the uh, the, the P5 plus one nuclear agreement um, uh, that the Obama administration was able to uh, hammer down with, uh, with, with the Iranians. And um, yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is that you have a lot of the same principles now in the Trump administration who were there in the Bush administration. I think it's it's incredible how quickly people forget that in 2006, 2007, we were literally on the verge of a war with Iran. I mean, if if Cheney and his uh, coterie of uh, you know lampreys and degenerates would have gotten their way, we would have gone to war with Iran. Uh, maybe it's fair to say that were it not for the leaked uh, national intelligence estimate in 2007, which debunked the myth of an Iranian nuclear program, uh, it might have happened. And certainly if uh, the situation in Iraq at that time hadn't been such a disastrous quagmire, they undoubtedly would have gone to war with Iran. So it's 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 interesting how quickly people forget how close we were to that. And here we are, fast forward, essentially 10 years later, and uh, that's exactly where we stand right now, almost as if it it didn't skip a beat. You know what I mean? It's like you had this you had this period uh, of Obama and all of a sudden that ends and we're right back to where we were 10 years ago and that's disheartening to say the least but uh you know aside from disheartening i think it again shows the continuity of what we're witnessing taking shape in washington there's nothing anti-establishment about this there's nothing maverick there's nothing anti-regime change this is the biggest load of bull that uh, that, that came out of this whole election cycle the notion that trump was anti-war or anti-regime change you know i wrote a piece in march of 2016 uh, entitled uh, uh, President Trump question mark U.S. war machine rolls on. It was clear to me then just as it's clear to me now that Trump represented absolutely zero threat to the empire zero threat to uh, the war machine and specifically in many ways he represented a boon for uh, weapons manufacturers for others who needed a new conflict who needed one that would be of a large scale one that could justify massive uh, spending and look at what Trump's rhetoric is he's saying we got to quote unquote beef up our military that our military is a is a disaster as he's so you know fond of saying everything's a disaster including our military we have to we have to bloat the budget and inflate it even further this is this is you know aside from being wrong morally and ethically and politically this is I think indicative of what the Trump administration is really all about and and so that's why again it's laughable when you get this narrative of well if we didn't have Trump it would have been Hillary Clinton and we would have had World War 3 with Russia 
aside from being a relatively specious argument, I, I think that um, it's pretty clear that uh, what Hillary Clinton would have done would have been continued the Obama administration's policies and ramped them up perhaps in Syria and uh, maybe elsewhere, but certainly not talking about open war with nuclear superpowers like uh, China, you know, which is ultimately what the the uh, the Trump administration is talking about now. And it's not just Bannon. Uh, what, you know, uh, Tillerson uh, I believe used the word blockade uh, in relation to the South China Sea. Holy now, shit. now let's think about what that means. You have the CEO, longtime president of ExxonMobil, talking about a military blockade of the body of water that holds the largest untapped energy reserves in the world. Now, does anybody else find that utterly ridiculous and and certainly more than coincidental? In other words, the 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 pivot to Asia that Obama uh, enacted, which was you know this sort of soft imperialism that Obama was 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 talking about, that is being ramped up. That's being put on steroids now, and it's being done in this transparently uh, neo-colonial fashion, where the United States not only wants to contain China, but it wants to deprive China of access to these massive energy reserves under the South China Sea. Remember that China has deployed some of the world's uh, most advanced oil rigs into that part of uh, you know the South China Sea that the United States wants to you know potentially blockade and certainly wants to uh, you know uh, saber rattle against China over. So there is this sort of multi-layered. Um, uh, strategy going on where China is being targeted and it's being done with economics and it's being done with geopolitics and it's being done militarily and and I guess in relation to that we have to mention you know the 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 signature the signature achievement so far for Donald Trump at least certainly among progressives was Donald Trump killing the Trans-Pacific Partnership that's the one piece that so many people point to and say yes yeah, so Trump is terrible but at least he killed the Trans-Pacific Partnership and I would have a little hesitation about that because essentially what Trump did was not was not really uh, pushing back against the idea of uh, using various economic means to isolate China, which is what the Trans-Pacific Partnership was really about. It was about creating an economic uh, interconnected community in the Asia-Pacific that was under the thumb of the United States rather than under the influence of China. That's ultimately what the, the aim of the Trans-Pacific Partnership was about. It was a means of undermining China's One Belt, One Road, New Silk Road, maritime Time Silk Road strategy of economic development in Asia. So what the Trump administration does, they come in, they say, we're going to kill the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but we're going to go at, at China head on. We're not going to use this oblique, soft power, economic, you know, uh, strangulation strategy. We're going to straight up warmonger against them, and we're going to see who blinks first. Now, that is so incredibly dangerous, I almost can't even put it into words. Oh, that's a... Uh it's a great, great point. I mean, you, earlier you said neo-colonialism, um, and that really struck me because neoconservatism, you know, even even though a lot of it's bullshit and phony, they at least put on the facade that it's done out of humanitarianism and making the world in America's image. Yep. And that's the that's the core principle behind, you know, a lot of these people claim to believe. But what you're describing is 
like it's like George W. Bush's cowboy diplomacy without the libertarian, without the liberal humanitarian um, uh, angle of neoconservatism. Completely exactly. taking that away and just straight on, you know, you better do what we say. Um, the cowboy swagger with with real threats behind it, and that's and, and at the same time with the aim of taking other countries' resources. That is. That is more of a classic neo-colonialism uh, thing. So that, exactly. that's it's really yeah. frightening. Yeah, and, and, and think about this. Okay, let's go back to the rhetoric that the Bush administration used against Iran, right? Iran is a state sponsor of terror. Iran is destabilizing. Iran is anti-democratic. Iran is this theocracy. Iran is oppressing women and all of these things. I'm not really interested in debating the merits uh, of, of various arguments for or against Iran. What I'm interested in is is taking a look at the language and, and the, kind, the nature of those threats. The Bush administration used any number of pretexts to warmonger against Iran. You look at the you look at Trump, what was Trump's comment? He said Iran is not behaving. <laughs> That's what he said, literally, yeah. that they're not behaving. Now, there's two ways of reading that. On the one hand, you could say that's because Trump is a fucking idiot who doesn't have any way of articulating anything, you know, in a sophisticated way beyond like a sixth grader. That's certainly true. But I think that there's another underlying attitude that is reflected in that statement, and it's what you just described. It is the stripping away of any pretext of liberal democracy, any pretext of anything other than straight out big stick imperialism you know that's really what this is and so that's why i'm saying when we talk about a continuity of policy it's a continuity of policy but there is a marked difference in terms of the tactics that are used yeah and that's that's going to be really interesting i mean i say interesting but it's going to be disturbing to see which you know liberals or more centrist people go along with that um because you know, on one hand, they're all worried about Trump's temperament and he's a blowhard, he's a narcissist. But I have a feeling a lot of, you know, smart people, smart seeming people, educated, more liberal people would actually be into that. And that's going to be an interesting test to see how many of them are okay with that. I mean, what was interesting is Andrea Mitchell from CNN um, was, you know, has been a pretty staunch Trump critic, but as soon as he announced that Elliot Abrams might be appointed as deputy secretary of state, um, she kind of had a change of heart and she's like, Oh, he's bringing in people with, you know, experience now government experience. Um, you know, without mentioning the fact that Elliot Abrams would be in jail had he not been pardoned by George HW Bush for being an Iran Contra collaborator and criminal. Um, who's, you know, also responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths in South America from the death squads that he helped, you know, run and propagandize for. So, And one of the chief architects of George W. Bush's war in Iraq. Exactly. And so it's, it's interesting that, you know, all these anti-neocon Trump supporters are ignoring all this stuff right now. I mean, they, they're virtually ignoring it. Um, I've seen libertarian, you know, people who are more on the fence about Trump kind of getting their wake up call now, which is, I guess it's a good sign that, you know, that some of those people are, you know, the honeymoon's already over for them, but I'm, I'm curious what, you know, how this will divide sort of the mainstream, you know, how many non Trump loyalists 
will be okay with that type of big stip, stick imperialism you're talking about. And I, and I fear a lot of people will, a lot of non-right-leaning people will, and that's going to be disturbing to watch. Yeah, I think I think that's true, and I think that there is an implicit racism uh, uh, that underlies some of this. Um, you know, warmongering against Russia versus warmongering against China. Somehow, these things are treated differently. And, you know, maybe it has to do with what I was pointing to in terms of the influence of Russian media. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's a part of it. I don't know how big of a part that is. Maybe it is what uh, Richard Spencer and the alt-right people say about Russia, that Russia is the last bastion of true uh, white great powers. You know, that's, that's kind of part of the reason there's such an affinity between uh, the alt-right and, uh, and, and Russia. And there's many examples that I could point to, including concrete, tangible connections. Uh, we could point to any number of reasons why, but all of a sudden you had all of these right-wing, you know, quote-unquote libertarians of the Alex Jones variety who were so, uh, you know, troubled by the idea of a nuclear war with Russia and yet totally comfortable with a nuclear war with China. Yeah, why? <laughs> what What explains that? I think part of that is is is... Racism. I mean, we have to, you know, we have to be open about it that the Chinese are not seen as, you know, um, the kind of enemy, quote unquote, as as Russia is. That China is, you know, the big bad commie in the world. Whereas Russia, you know, I mean, they're a power, but you know, they're capitalist, and we can work with them, and we should work with them to destroy ISIS. You see the difference in the treatment between these two superpowers, or Russia's not really a superpower, but certainly a nuclear power. Um, you know, this is, I think, something very indicative, and that's something that we've seen increasingly splitting uh, the anti-imperialist uh, circles that I that I follow, because you have a lot of people who are, you know, partisans for China who are saying anybody supporting Trump is a is a you know is a piece of uh, dog poo, you know, and. Uh, you have others who are, you know, Russophiles who are saying, whoa, 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 let's give Trump a chance here, people. Come on, let's relax. He's only been in office for two weeks, Every, you know, and then posting things like, you know, uh, everyone who everyone who disagrees with me is Hitler, as if, you know, that's like this like funny meme that people want to post as, you know, anybody disagreeing with Trump is all of a sudden saying that Trump is Hitler. Well, Trump is certainly a fascist in the, in the classic mold, but, um, you know, we have to be, I think, cognizant of the attitudes that are being propagated on social media and the reverberations that they have in the grassroots activism. You know, there's a lot of people who are uh, demonstrating in the streets right now against Trump for for you know valid reasons you know his his misogyny his racism the muslim ban all of these things but you know we have to keep in mind that when we demonstrate against trump what we're also doing is we're taking a hard anti-war position and that must be the position and forget the hypocrisy of liberals who didn't say a word about obama's wars in libya and uh, in yemen and elsewhere you know and uh, all over africa and in latin america Leaving that aside, because obviously there is that elephant in the room, but leaving that aside, the discourse has to be one of anti-war work. And right now, Donald Trump and his administration have threatened war with Iran, with Mexico, and with China. 
and I don't know, whatever the hell he said on the phone call with the Australian prime minister, all, for all I know, he's threatening to invade Australia, you know? So this is, this is the kind of lunacy that is now, uh, you know, in power in Washington and I think it's a very dangerous mistake to underestimate it. And I think it's a dangerous mistake to say, oh, he'll never do that. Really? Are you sure? Yeah, look what he's done so far. I mean, that's and and that's every day was a, you know, a wake up call for me every consecutive day that he was in office, because there were several things that he's already done that I actually thought to myself before this election, he'll never do that. I mean, I, you know, and I was. Like what? Um, killing terrorist families, for for example. Like literally targeting terrorist families. Uh-huh. Um, and he's already done that. Um, you know, and I, I was naive. I mean, or I just thought that he was, you know, talking. You know, just kind of being a blowhard. Acting like he was this sort of aggressive, you know, strong man. I, I didn't know... I, I guess I, it, it, some of that stuff did blindside me. I bet you also thought that there would be people who would come along who would moderate all of those positions. <laughs> well, I thought, I mean, I was under the impression that... Because that's, that's partially what I was thinking. I thought, you know, this 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 idiot is going to stand here and say all these ridiculous things. And then the professional imperialists are going to come in and be like, all right, Donald, the adults are going to take over. You just go out and tweet. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I thought that he was going to be just more generically presidential acting and more of a professional, you know, trying to trying to roll out the things that he was going to do with more finesse. Yeah. Um, but yeah. but that that brings me to another uh, topic I want to discuss with you with this sort of mysterious um, angle of Bannon and what kind of power and influence he has in the administration and what Bannon is capable of and what he's been doing you know since since he's been in charge of Breitbart and one of the things that I keep thinking of is we we mentioned this at the very beginning of our discussion today but this idea that you know is this sloppy is this being rolled out without you know proper diplomatic professionals being able to you know kind of massage it and, and give it some finesse so that it lands on the public in a way that's more comfortable or is it intentionally sort of without warning kind of boom, 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 one executive order right after another and also policies done behind the scenes to that seems specifically designed to anger different parts of lib, the liberal side of politics and the left. So you're already angering scientists, um, environmentalists, park rangers, Anybody who works in the national park system, um, I mean, so you got the environmentalists all pissed off, and then now you have all the Muslims upset, and all the people who care about, you know, Muslims being persecuted in this country extremely pissed off, um, and then you have people who don't want to go to Iran uh, pissed off. I mean, there's just seem there seems to be some intentionality to sort of the speed of this, and it's and it doesn't, you know, at first I was like Trump is egotistical he wants people to know that he's making good on these promises right away but uh, i i'm leaning more towards this is meant to shock and confuse and emotionally upset people on a certain level 
I think that, that there's definitely uh, truth to that. I, I, I do agree. I think there's more. Um, I think another way of looking at it is while it's intended to shock and upset, it's also intended to, um, for lack of a better word, to tire people out, to sort of make them immune to this on a daily basis. Oh, what what's the next lunatic thing this ridiculous clown did today? Okay, whatever. Anyway, what else is on? In other words, you know, the the, the more ham-fisted it is and the more ridiculous it seems, the less people might be mobilized to do anything about it. I think that there is some element of that, you know, to tire people out activists out to tire them out to you know say well how many protests am i going to go to how many how many more little league games am i going to miss for my you know for my son because i'm out protesting trump okay i can do this for six weeks i can do this for three months can i do it for four years you know so i think that there's i think that's part of it um there's another uh level to this that is has been discussed by some. I don't want to say that this is my, you know, uh, original, you know, unique interpretation, but um, it's sort of underplayed. There was a story that uh, came out. I don't remember what outlet I read it on, and I don't remember who originally wrote it. Um, but this this interesting um, confluence of Steve Bannon with Leninism. Steve Bannon, as an admirer of Lenin, obviously not an admirer of, uh, of communism, obviously not an admirer of the Russian Revolution, of the Bolsheviks, or of uh, that ideology, and certainly of uh, you know, uh, formulations about imperialism and, and the state uh, and revolution. But there is this uh, key philosophical point that I think Bannon has internalized, and that's the concept of the vanguard. The vanguard party, or the coterie of professional revolutionaries, which is, a, a, at its root, a Lenin formulation. I mean, that is the, the, the bedrock of Leninism, the idea of a vanguard of revolutionaries that would radicalize and, and, and organize the masses and direct the masses towards whatever the desired end goal is. Obviously, you know, uh, traditionally we, you know, people on the left think of, you know, Lenin, Leninism and the word revolution as belonging to the left. But, and I have to say, uh, Ben Norton, who was on my show, uh, and I guess that's hasn't come out yet, but that'll be out soon. Uh, Ben Norton brought this point up and I think he's correct. And we kind of talked about this further on my show. So I want to give him credit for that. Uh, Ben Norton journalist with alternate, uh, formerly of salon. Um, but this idea that that the left doesn't own the concept of revolution, that there are people on the far right who also see themselves as quote-unquote revolutionary in the sense that they want to tear things down. And Bannon, I believe, wants to create this, this, this inner circle, this coterie of right-wing revolutionaries. In other words, that Trump and Bannon and this small circle, they are the ones who are leading the masses in the direction that they need to go. And in order for them to do that, they create this sense of oppression. They create uh, 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 you know, a block of forces to stand in opposition to. So they want the media to be antagonized. They want people out in the streets. They want to create this sort of conflict. They want people to feel like this is all sort of leading to, to, to a conflict because that's what they need in order to pursue the agenda. I, 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 
it doesn't it, to me this isn't conspiracy thinking this is trying to unravel the ideological framework through which Bannon and Trump are operating I I completely agree with what you just said and I've heard you know some people using the term head fake in response to some of the things that Trump has already rolled out that's that that maybe on some level this is designed to um, create a, a level of fatigue or exhaustion, kind yeah. of what you were saying. That let's just say, and and I'm and this is, and I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way. And I and I and I would characterize this as a Muslim ban. I, I think that it is, but at the same time, Trump has not literally banned all Muslims from entering the country. He's not making people do a religious test yet, in the sense that these are only certain countries. Now, what if this was? sort of a head fake move to get all the left and, and other liberals outraged at, and then calling it a Muslim ban. But what happens once if he decides to do an actual literal full blown Muslim ban, then what do you call it? So I do think there might be an element of that in play here that it might be like, let's anger, you know, parts of liberalism in the left and get them so outraged that they hit a peak or a ceiling so, like, that when we really do the really bad shit, they're already be exhausted from being angry about it. I don't know if that's if that's in line with what you're saying. Absolutely, um, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly the point. And to take it to take it further, right? If you create this animosity in 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 the social fabric, if you are in in effect deliberately manufacturing uh, a movement against you. Well, then you're only bolstering your own position because you were propelled into power th by this feeling of oppression, the feeling that you're being targeted, the feeling that the forces of power are aligned against you. And now you create millions in the streets. You, you, you're able to then say, you see, as we've said all along, it is the liberals, it is the media, it is all of these different forces. They're all out to get us. We have to band together. What does that do? That radicalizes them further. It entrenches their position with their own base and it radicalizes their base. And then you now have this sort of, you know, have your cake and eat it too, right? You, you go for, say, building the wall. Okay. If you build the wall, well, you delivered on your campaign promise. Boom. Awesome. Job done. Everybody, everybody's happy. But if we don't build the wall, well, it's because of all this opposition against us. They made it impossible for us. In other words, you're, you're creating a rigged game politically. And that's, again, why I, I really don't want people to underestimate Bannon and, and the people that are around Trump. I don't think that any of this is by accident. I think they know exactly what they're doing. And I think they're rolling these things out deliberately ham-fisted so that they can create exactly this array of forces. Yeah, I mean it's a scary thought to to think that on on the White House level there is there might be and it seems like there is a deliberate psyop angle to the to the speed and the intensity at which they are un, uh, rolling some of this stuff out. Um and that's that's takes on a completely different flavor than the George W Bush administration. Um so and that's going to have to be studied by people, you know, moving forward. And unfortunately, I feel, you know, pretty 
out out of my depth when it comes to Bannon. I feel like I have to play catch up now and learn a lot more about you know what his whole philosophy is and what he might be doing right now. Um, but that brings us to this sort of flashpoint moment, you know. And I hate to, it's not. I mean, it only is in a media sense, and that and they're trying to use it like that. But this UC Berkeley um, protest that happened recently against Milo coming to quote unquote just talk um, when what we know he was going to do um, was actually out undocumented immigrant students and 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 tell the audience to call the immigration authorities on them so you know and it's and there's no um there's no mystery behind the fact that milo was or is still on some level steve uh, bannon's employee um he's one of breitbart's star writers um star provocateurs and here we have right after this rollout of all these horrible you know ham-fisted policies designed to shock us um, one of the largest responses to Milo yet, one of the most intense responses. And when this happened, you know, I immediately saw a split on the left happening um, where people were very opposed to what happened there, basing, basing their beliefs on the hysterical media coverage, only showing the black block agitators. And then, a, you know, the other side left saying, no, this is good. This is a valid response to Milo. And, you know, it kind of worried me after that happened that what if this is Bannon and the Trump administration testing the waters of, you know, trying to corral the left or trying to fracture the left? And I just want to know how you feel about, you know, that response, if you think it's valid or not, and what you think about the way that it's being sort of thrown around in the echo chamber in general. Yeah, well, I... I I think it's probably pretty clear based on what I was just saying uh, earlier that uh, I wouldn't put anything past Bannon. I think that he knows uh, very well what he's doing and I think that it is uh, certainly a valid line of inquiry because if you if you look at the events at Berkeley, um, it seems increasingly clear that uh, the violence and, and certainly a lot of the um, the after effects of the violence that we saw in the media was uh, in many ways uh, the result of provocateurs deliberately provoking the kind of response that they knew they would get. Um, you know, there was a story in, I know that Robert Reich had said that publicly, uh, wanting to know exactly who were the uh, provocateurs and were these right-wing infiltrators who were there deliberately fomenting this sort of uh, this sort of conflict. Uh, the Intercept just ran a piece um, uh, focusing on uh podcaster slash blogger associated with uh, the the alt-right who was uh, witnessed there by many people, including reporters from, I want to say, the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, you know, provoking protesters, peaceful protesters, you know, calling them pussies and and uh, pushing them and shoving them and, you know, waving Donald Trump signs and whatever. And then, you know, uh, you know, an hour, two hours later, he's videotaped, uh, you know, filmed on TV with, uh, you know, blood all over his face and he got punched and, you know, all of this stuff, but he was happy about it. He was smiling. He was laughing. Now, there's two ways of reading that. On the one hand, he's happy because he provoked a reaction. On the other hand, he's happy because he's accomplished the objective. And it, it's, you know, it's a matter of perspective exactly how you want to read that. For my purposes, um, I don't believe that anything that's happening right now is truly happening by accident. 
as I've said throughout this conversation, Robbie, I, I really do believe that the that the that the people around Trump, specifically Bannon, understand that the number one way to legitimize and to buttress their position is to present themselves as being oppressed, as being victims. And this is like, you know, par excellence. Oh, that's, I'm, I'm totally misusing that phrase, <laughs> but whatever. This is, uh, this is exhibit A, you know, in, um, in, in, in Berkeley, right? This idea that, that this far right clown, and I, I don't know if he's like a full-blown fascist or if he's just like the living embodiment of everything troll, you know, but, uh, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos or however you say his name, that he shows up to to essentially real-time troll, you know, and, and create exactly this sort of situation only to then be made into a martyr for free speech, a fr- martyr for free speech at the site of the historic free speech movement in Berkeley through, you know, the 1960s, of course, that there is this sort of inversion of the, uh, you know, the history of the left where the far right is now essentially usurping the position of the left in terms of activism, in terms of its, you know, political posture, in terms of its, you know, opposition to power and so forth. You see, this is, I think, the, the uh, you know, the, the, triangulation, as it were, that Bannon is employing here, that in power, he's able to marshal forces that present themselves as having no power, that that present themselves as being in opposition to power, when in fact they are at one degree separated from the very seat of power in the empire. Now, what does that mean for us moving forward? I think that means that the that the kind of uh, um, actions that we're going to see that they're going to escalate and they're going to escalate on both sides. It's going to be a a prov- provocation followed by a predictable response followed by an increased provocation and an increased response and that leads to very dangerous uh, political and, and and social territory. And at the same time, and this is the this is the part that we haven't discussed. At the same time that all of this is seemingly building up to some kind of very uh, scary climax, you have an economic system in the United States and globally that is teetering on the brink of collapse at the very same time that social anger is seething and, and, you know, the temperature rising, you have wall street, uh, the reins being taken off wall street, Dodd Frank, very weak legislation, very gutless, uh, piece of legislation that was pushed through during Obama's term. That's even that is being totally destroyed by Trump. The reins have, co- have come off wall street, Goldman Sachs is going to be able to basically take their derivatives uh, operation, which is in the tens of trillions of dollars, way past the total national GDP. They're going to be able to flip that into massive, massive profits for themselves. And where does that go? That goes to an economic crisis worse than 2008. Okay, now put all this together. You have a rising climate of anger socially. You have a hated political uh, uh, administration at the very at the very topmost echelons of power, and you have an economic system on the brink of collapse. What happens when the switch gets flipped 
if you know what I mean. What happens when whatever the event is, whether it's a, like something like a subprime mortgage crisis in 2008, uh, you know, many are predicting a, a, a bond crisis because of how uh, quantitative, easing, quantitative easing has really built up this ginormous bubble economy that that is what if that explodes what if that explodes against the backdrop of the kind of political forces that we're seeing where does that then take us see i'm not saying these things to you know as like prognostication of doomsday i'm saying it because people need to really think this through and really consider the implications of all of these developments and what is going to happen when a mil fully militarized police force in you know all across the country which by the way Obama was one of the chief architects of the continued militarization of police forces couple that with the kind of administration in Washington plus controlling both houses of congress plus Goldman Sachs in control of the economic future of the country I mean, I shudder to think where that is leading. <laughs> it's a very scary picture that you paint. Um, but I wanted to go back to the, the protests at UC Berkeley itself. Um, and, you know, this whole idea that, and we, we talked about this at length on the, uh, on the Counterpunch podcast, of how the right wing... And the Trump supporters have been able to create this narrative that all left-wing protests, um, you know, from the Women's March, you know, one of the biggest, most mainstream protests, all the way down to all these grassroots anti-Trump protests or airport, you know, Muslim ban protests, they're all George Soros. They're all <laughs> being manipulated by the puppet master George Soros. And that narrative, you know, sort of coalesces with that fake news narrative, um, they use they lean on that too. Trump has already used it several times since he's been in office. Um, that that's just fake news. You know, anytime there's news that he doesn't like. But what's fascinating to me about that is now it sort of puts you know the other side at a disadvantage. Um, where when they want to bring up the idea, like Robert Reich did, of how do we know these people at this protest weren't right wing provocateurs? It's just immediately brushed off, and those people, you know now can say oh you're you know you're crazy that's fake news and it just becomes this strange um uh thing now where we it's i guess one way to describe it would be the way that trump seized on election fraud moving into uh you know the election over the summer mostly he was saying that he doesn't know if he would deem the results legitimate and then the media started bashing him for bringing up this issue of election fraud or voter fraud. But what was interesting to me is the media was more trying to wrap it into this idea that, well, voter fraud, you know, that's sort of a right-wing, you know, false uh, propaganda talking point. But they were also saying that election fraud and rigging of the votes was a false conspiracy theory. Even Obama echoed that um, on the White House lawn uh, when Trump started saying that. But we, you and I know that election fraud is a major problem and there's been evidence of election fraud um, in the 2000 election, in the 2004 elections, um, and even as recently as this election. So that I, I, you know, that was an interesting thing. And then now, all these right wingers are saying all the protests are George Soros. But why wouldn't the same thing apply to, you know, even just a handful, a pocket of right wing provocateurs at a 
left-wing protests. That I mean, that seems almost too easy to get away with because, um, you know, whether you like Black Bloc or not, and I have mixed feelings about, you know, some of the things Antifa and Black Bloc have done at Occupy and stuff like that. But there is the, the fact that they are um, covering their identities. They're, they're anonymous, kind of in the same way that anonymous, the, you know, uh, online activist group is, that is ripe for potential infiltration by provocateurs by its, its very brand, nature. It's a- it's a brand. It's a brand, and anybody can use it. Anybody can appropriate it. It's just like ISIS, right? Who, uh, when, when, when there's a terrorist attack, you know, in Turkey or in somewhere in Europe or whatever it may be, and ISIS claims responsibility. Well, how do you know that's the ISIS? If there is the ISIS, or if there's just a brand name that's appropriated by a, by a wide array of terrorist groups, you see. Similarly, with anonymous, when anonymous, the the hacking. Uh, organization or organization is not even the right word. The hacking brand name uh, is employed. How do you know who that is? I mean, you, you, not not only that you don't know the identity, you don't even know if they belong to an organization actually called Anonymous. It's literally a complete mystery. Similarly with Black Bloc, right? You can't know if those are actually left-wing anarchists or if they're police agents who put on a black mask and go destroy property in order to delegitimize protests or if they are, you know, uh, intelligence operatives or maybe a combination of all three. You know, we saw with Occupy the this really uh, horrific uh, entrapment schemes that, uh, that uh, intelligence agencies and law enforcement used to basically entrap these, um, you know, anarchists who wanted to, you know, fuck some shit up, you know, and they, and, and they create these sorts of plots in order to justify their narrative. So yeah, I, I, I have a big problem with it. Not that I have a problem with destruction of property. I don't care about Starbucks windows. I don't care about, you know, all that stuff. I don't care about a limousine being torched. You know, those things are symbolic and okay, they're fun for a minute or whatever, but I don't particularly care one way or another. They certainly don't achieve any political goal, but I also don't think they should necessarily be in instantly condemned uh, the way that many liberals uh, like to do. So I, I guess I'm with you in the sense of I have some mixed uh, feelings about it. But this Soros narrative, I think this is important. There's there's a couple of different um, – as with all things Trump and Bannon, there's a couple of layers to it and a couple of ways of reading it. Um, on the one hand, um, you know, this Soros narrative, this is something that is very pervasive uh, online. It's something that uh, goes back uh, at least a couple of decades, certainly rooted in a lot of uh, fact, including uh, Soros and Open Society being a major source of funding for a number of astroturf uh, revolutions in the former Soviet republics, particularly in Georgia in 2003, in Ukraine in 2004, uh, and similarly in a couple of other countries as well. Uh, so it is It is rooted at least partially in some level of truth. Oh, Atpur in Serbia in 2000 is the one I didn't mention. Um, you know, but it's also this really oversimplified, uh, almost uh, too convenient uh, explanation for, you know, what amounts to a pretty complex set of social and political forces. Now, 
so, so it is a popular, um, I don't like to use the word conspiracy theory because that is a loaded term that is also the product of U.S. intelligence agencies. But uh, it, it is a, a very common meme among many of the far right and also many on the left who have followed these issues for, for a couple of decades. At the same time, this idea that Soros is the mastermind behind all political activism, this is, this is really the, the, the bread and butter of Alex Jones, of the far right uh, in the United States and in Europe and in Russia. And um, Soros is seen as this puppet master. Now, what does that what does that mean? I would argue that it's at least partially the idea that Soros himself as an individual is the puppet master. But I think it's also, we, you know, we talked about this before. It, it is also that dog whistle, right? It is also this kind of um, uh, uh, coded language for the Rothschild, the global Jew conspiracy, Wall Street, right? The ghouls who have been doing it for, you know, 300 years. Years are doing it again, right? It is it is the cosmopolitan Jew trying to destroy white Christianity. It is all of these different forces. This is this is fascist propaganda going back many decades, and I think it has a modern incarnation with Soros. This is not to absolve Soros of any of the things that he's done. It is to point to the narrative, the continuum within which this kind of conspiracy thinking emerges, right? Now it is popularized by Bannon, by Breitbart, by the far right. This is something very dangerous because when you look at it in the broader sense, right, this ties into all of the things we've been saying about Bannon and about Breitbart and about the far right, the anti-Semitism, right? At the same time, by the way, at the same time that there's anti-Semitism, there's, there's, it's pro-Zionist. So, yeah. you know, it has this it has this dual nature and that partially is because Zionism is very close to, if not an adjunct of fascism. I mean, it is ultimately a fascist uh, ideology, certainly ethno-nationalist, yeah. uh, which is, you know, obviously, you know, the line between that and fascism is somewhat blurry. I'm, I'm, I'm pointing this out because this is. Um, an avenue of discussion that is almost never touched because some people are afraid of being labeled anti-Semites. Some people are afraid of being labeled conspiracy theorists. Some people are afraid of being labeled, uh, you know, pro-Zionist. It depends on the perspective and it depends on who's doing the attacking. For me, I don't particularly care about any of that. I'm, <laughs> I'm attacked endlessly all the time anyway. So for me, when they say Soros is behind everything, what they're really saying is there is no such thing as legitimate protest against Trump. It is all a conspiracy by the elites. And that, again, goes back to this notion of Trump as the victim of the oppression of the system. Trump as a maverick against the system, again, playing into Trump's narrative. Brilliantly put. I mean, that's it's it's really impressive um, that that's they're still able to hold that up and and there's other avenues that that is creeping in too and I don't know if you um, pay attention to the conspiracy world as much as I do but there was a very interesting other angle to what you're talking about that came in right before the election and kind of connected in some way with this whole Pizzagate conspiracy theory and it was this ex State Department guy named Steve. Pachenik, 
I think his name is. Does that sound yeah. familiar to you? Oh, sure. He's a, he was a regular on uh, Alex Jones's program. Exactly. Yeah. And and one of those these theories that he put out there that that's that went viral and is still echoed by a lot of Trump supporters is that the intelligence community is trying to launch some kind of coup d'état against Trump. Yep. Before he was in office and now still after him being in office. And RT, that- is, RT is publishing op-eds on that very subject. I believe one was published two days ago called The Soft Coup in the United States. I And I, I totally believe that because I've, I've seen similar things they've been posting. But one of the interesting and scary things that that could create um, and it, you know, and this is a minor connection, a loose connection to Trump's tweets saying, you know, putting that, the, the federal judge who knocked down or put a freeze on the Muslim ban, putting judge in quotes. I don't know if you saw these tweets. Oh that, yeah. Where he so was called, so-called judge. Yeah, he he was just trolling a judge. There's a scary precedent that could be starting here where it's almost trying to justify or nakedly out in the open once again that the other branches of government are actually trying to undermine me they're yeah. not legitimate you know the you know so there's there's different angles that this is coming in that really could be sort of planting the seeds for well the white house does need to usurp every other federal agency including all federal judges because they're working against us we're the victims um, the framework is already all there for a shoring up of more executive power. And that's also uh, really scary. Um, and while you were talking about Soros, I just found an article that Ben Norton posted, um, released today, where in a documentary from 2007 that was never released, um, the documentary was titled The Islamic States of America. Steve Bannon was interviewed in it. Um, and this footage never came out, but it surfaced, uh, the, the actual transcript from its surface today, where he says that Jew, U.S. Jews are enablers of jihad, um, that, that elite Jews in this country are responsible for the rise of Islam. So that, I mean, you know, this guy, um, you know, the, the, one of their, I guess, best coded things on Breitbart is the anti-Semitism angle, but... I do feel like there there is more anti-Semitism here than people are really aware of. And that Holocaust Remembrance Day omission yeah. of the Jewish people should have yeah. been a red flag to every single establishment, Republican and Democrat, uh, in the House and Senate. And I'm shocked that that wasn't, you know, that that didn't make people more outraged. So, that they, I mean, they did an all lives matter on the Holocaust. I mean, that's literally what they did. So, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot to chew on, you know, and 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 um, I'll just say this, you know, as as somebody who is, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be plainly obvious about it, uh, very much an atheist, uh, very much uh, not an adherent to any religion, but of Jewish background, I feel a particular freedom to discuss uh, anti-Semitism in an open and honest way where I think people who are not Jewish maybe would be a little bit hesitant for various reasons or people who are Jewish and Zionist might be hesitant for a number of reasons. For me, um, I'll speak plainly about it. Number one, the, the claim of anti-Semitism every time somebody criticizes Israel, this is this is part of the uh, red herring that the Zionists use endlessly to insulate Israel from all of the 
correct and justified criticisms of its uh, fascist regime. At the very same time, we can't be blind to the fact that uh, uh, an undercurrent of anti-Semitism really underlies a lot of uh, what Breitbart is about and certainly the base. Uh, and, and it has to do with, again, something that has been um, you know, a popular narrative for I mean, at the very least, 150 years, uh, maybe even longer than that. Certainly, people uh, listening are probably familiar with the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It's a prime example of that, but many others. The idea that there is a cabal of Jews who are secretly fomenting every war, who are secretly uh, uh, um, supporting both communism and fascism, who are secretly plotting to control the world and to destroy Christianity and to remake the world in the in their own image. I mean, this is you know the Illuminati, uh, uh, the uh, many different conspiracy theories and conspiracy frameworks that uh, sort of um, the have globalists, their co- the globalists, the new world order, right? All of these things they. They come together in the you know to create this kind of a picture. Now, if you look at it from 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 one perspective, you have Bannon and Breitbart stoking this, right? Uh, uh, putting you know using these coded uh, anti-Semitic uh, uh, narratives and 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 putting that out there. At the very same time, Bannon comes from Wall Street. Nushin, you know, Nushin comes from Goldman Sachs. These are, you know, these are Jewish people, not Bannon, but 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 uh, Gary Cohn and and Nushin and 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 others who are in the administration driving the economic policy. So it is this incredible juxtaposition where they're able to present this this picture that that uh, you know an elite cabal of Jews are working against us, while an elite cabal of Jews works with them. So it's like, you know, you have this bizarre uh, uh, relief, I, I guess you could say, between them. Look, Steve Nushin, who is the uh, sec- you know incoming secretary of the treasury, this is George Soros's business partner, for God's sake. So you have a conspiracy narrative wherein Soros is trying to effect a coup against the Trump administration, while Soros's business partner is one of the prime leaders of the Trump administration. How do you explain that? How do you square that circle? That's that's the danger here is that this kind of disjointed analysis from a lot of people that's not taking into account seemingly disparate elements and putting them together to create a broader picture. I think that that's what the left is particularly missing here. You have to see it for what it is. You have hardcore Zionist elements in the Trump administration, obviously not the least of which Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, but certainly many others, uh, uh, connected with Wall Street elements uh, and at the same time really disturbingly anti-Semitic elements all working together. What's that? <laughs> I don't even know. If I, what's the word for that? It's it's unprecedented. I mean, I've never... It, it's it's something that's extremely hard to characterize. Um, <laughs> so... I mean, it's. It, I mean, one of the interesting things to me about the globalist uh, term that got extremely popular, especially after the election. I think Trump actually used it in his inaugural address. Yes, he did. Yep. Um, is that these people never criticize corporations specifically? Right. 
Never. No, corporations are the good guys. Yeah, They're they, the ones in making policy. They're it, the ones that we, we want in the administration. It's all about foreign banks and foreigners. Yeah. And even this whole idea that, um, and I've, I've personally been assailed on this level, which I found very interesting and it would blindsided me at first because I just, I, I guess I, I kind of ignored it for a long time. But this whole idea that neoconservatism um, is not uh, a primarily American, um, like hegemonic belief system. There are there were people who were sort of trying to beat it into my head that no, all neoconservatism is secretly, not secretly, but it's it is purely one hundred percent Zionism, and they're using all these other yeah. things as merely a shield for that. And what's interesting about that is, on some level. You know, part of what they're saying is true that a lot of you know it does center around Israel, but I I think um, Jim Loeb um, is someone who put it very succinctly and in a way that I completely agree with is that neoconservatives believe that America is exceptional and Israel is also exceptional, and both countries should pretty much be allowed to do whatever they want in their own quote unquote defense, um, and that's more along the lines of what I believe. But I was introduced to this whole world of people that actually does connect to the neo-Nazi movement and sort of the anti-Semitic movement that the Jews control everything. That once again, neoconservatism is really just a code word for, um, you know, these are all just Jews, uh, Jewish Zionists. Well, um, and one of them, and, and, and one of the ways in which that's expressed, and you're absolutely right, that's, that's I know I know that, uh, that line of analysis quite well, um, one of the ways that's expressed is in an inversion of the actual, uh, you know, let's call it, you know, to use the, <laughs> to use the old Marxist terminology, actually existing forces, right? It is an inversion, wherein Israel, code, you know, code word Jews, are in control of the United States, that the United States, you know, that, that, that the tail wags the dog or whatever, you know, to yeah. use that terminology, right? That, that what, what Israel says, the U.S. does. And then you translate that further. What Jews say, Gentiles do. Jews start wars that Gentiles have to fight, right? This is, this again ties into this Rothschilds run the world conspiracy, right? That, that there is this long standing, centuries old, uh, you know, conspiracy theory, right? Uh, this is, this is part and parcel of that. And, and, and so they, they will see neocons as their enemy, not because neocons are warmongering imperialist degenerates, but because neocons are Jewish uh, imperialists, right? That they, that they are after a sort of a Jewish Zionist hegemony rather than an American, uh, you know, U.S., NATO, Israeli hegemony. They don't see it in terms of the states anymore. They don't see it in terms of an imperial system with many interlocking parts that work in an almost seamless way. They don't have a structural critique. Rather, it is an ethnic critique. It is an ethno-nationalist critique. It is Again, I, I will say the word because I think that is the operative word. It is a fascist critique. And when we say fascist, I mean in the grand history of fascism. These ideas were popularized in our modern lexicon, in our modern discourse by the Nazis who appropriated it from the Tsar and the secret police of the Tsar, the Okhrana, right? The protocols of the elders of Zion, all of these 
elements that they, 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 they kind of filter down through the generations to what we have now. And the internet has been instrumental in popularizing that. There is no structural analysis of the Rothschilds, which is all about, you know, the, 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 the invention of finance capital in the late 18th century, the early industrial revolution and how investing and finance became a dominant form of modern capitalism. There's no structural analysis of how uh, that all developed and how it played a role in, in the history and development of Europe. No, none of that. There is a secret cabal that are involved in world domination. And it's called the New World Order, or it's called the Illuminati, or it's called the Rothschilds, or it's called, you know, whatever. It is that same line of thinking. And now that those people who have been thinking that way, they're no longer marginalized. In fact, they're one step away from the seat of power in the empire. Yeah. No, it's it's quite surreal. Um, and uh, I... And, and, and I just want to make one last point, you know, on that on that subject... As we talked about on, um, you know, on my show, Robbie, one of the scary things is they're not wrong in terms of their relationship to power. Now, they, Alex Jones, literally believes, and he probably is correct, that he has a direct line to the president. Can you imagine Alex fucking Jones? has a direct line to the White House. Now, I'm, I don't mean necessarily mean literally. I don't necessarily mean he's literally calling Donald Trump on the red phone, although <laughs> at this point he might be, you know. But, but, but that ideological, you know, uh, symbiosis, I mean, it's, it's, it's unmistakable. And it was just announced. Um, I, th I think Alex Jones actually jumped the gun on this, announcing that he uh, was going to be given White House press credentials along with Jerome Corsi, who is now working for Infowars. Um, and and that's World Net Daily. That's World Net Daily. Yeah. That's the that's the that's the uh, you know the origins of the birther oh, yeah. movement. Yeah, hundred um, percent. And that's what's also fascinating about this. You know, a lot of this stuff Trump has been doing over time has seemed like kind of scattershot shooting from the hip. But then you have to remember that he was one of the, you know, he went out there with that birth certificate uh, controversy, a uh, hoax, um, probably from shit he was reading from Jerome Corsi. Yeah, who was exactly. the most prominent pusher of that. And now he's going to have White House press con uh, credentials. And just an illustration of the relationship Alex Jones and Donald Trump already have, this ongoing relationship, is that Alex Jones let it slip and he actually got in trouble from the Trump administration. He admitted that he wasn't supposed to, to let that info out and he got a talking to. So the Trump administration is probably being a little bit more cautious with letting Alex Jones into the White House press corps right away. And, but I have, I mean, I, I think it's maybe going to be a month before Alex Jones himself is in that room. And that's, I mean, that's the scenario, you know, we were talking about how crazy it is that he's calling Alex Jones on the phone. We didn't even, you know, that's, that wasn't even in my, um, anywhere on my radar that that could happen. And now it actually seems like it's going to happen. And that is a very, uh, that's just extremely bizarre. Um, well, and, 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 you know, it could be that, um, you know, the Trump people are smart enough to know that they, that that would just be a real black eye for them, you know, that would be difficult to explain away. So they might, they might back away from having an overt presence for Infowars and for that, you know, conspiracy, uh, you know, world 
being directly in the White House press corps, but they will have that sort of indirect access via Breitbart, via you know the alt right, via a number of different avenues that they'll be able to, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, seed the discourse with their ideas, right? So you'll have the kind of questions that could be, you know, I, I heard that. Um, Spicer had said that uh, the Trump administration was going to implement like four, something like four uh, Skype seats. Yep. I was in, just going to mention that. Yeah. Yeah. Like four Skype seats or something in the, in the, in the press room. And uh, that that would be, that those would be reserved for, you know, news outlets that are traditionally ignored, that are traditionally not able to have people in Washington or whatever. To me, that's kind of a, a smokescreen <laughs> for being able to seed, you know, to, to, to seat, you know, non-journalists, right? Conspiracy yeah. mongers or what have you in there in order to basically plant the kinds of questions and the kinds of ideas that Bannon and the Trump people want to put out there. It's, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty slick move on their part. And, and I think that that's probably the avenue that they'll take in order to be able to get the InfoWars narrative in there. And, and oddly, uh, they already uh, did one of their Skype seat uh, questions. Um, Spicer answered one, and it was like a obscure right wing AM radio talk radio host um, who came on to Skype and actually called him Commander Spicer in front of the press corps. And there was even a, a, a noticeable laughter, sort of quiet laughter in the back of the room, like right when when Spicer was like, "Okay, now we're going to go to one of our Skype chairs." But um, the more they normalize that, I think we will eventually start seeing people like Alex Jones. Um, you know, maybe not some, maybe, maybe they know that would be too extreme to have Alex yeah, Jones on exactly. a Skype seat, but they might have someone else who's yeah. pretty much just an Alex Jones proxy. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how they'll get away with it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just really, really bizarre. Well, um, and, and, and I think that this points to something else that, that, um, you know, the, Okay, for me, one of the big takeaways of the first couple of weeks is that um, the idea that the Trump administration, that the, the particularly his inner circle, the idea that they don't know what they're doing, that needs to be dispensed with. I think they know exactly what they're doing, and I think that they're 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 doing it in a very very um, uh, strategic and uh, tactical and uh, well thought out and orchestrated way, and. Um, I think the sooner people come to terms with the nature of the threat we have now in Washington, the sooner they'll be able to mount a more effective resistance. And, and I guess that leads me to another point that we really haven't discussed, and that's that one of the most critical responsibilities of, of people who are uh, organizing themselves against the Trump administration is to prevent the Democrats from co-opting the movement. See, that's one of the real dangers of all of this is that it's so extreme, it's so reactionary, it's so obscene that people will, will, will get to the point where they'll be willing to accept anything but this, anything but this. Right. It doesn't matter. You could throw up Cory Booker, who could literally perform fellatio on Wall Street executives on national television and people wouldn't bat an eye because at least it's not Trump and Bannon. 
You see, and, and, and this is leading us in a very dangerous direction where, again, we will see a replay, maybe in a, in a more magnified way, a replay of what we saw during the Bush administration where organized resistance is essentially transformed into an adjunct of the Democratic Party. And that is what a lot of us have been very, very um, – um, active on speaking on because if we allow that to happen we are dooming ourselves to at least another decade if not another two decades of a back and forth slide into disaster right if you think it's bad where we've gone from 2000 with bush's election to 2016 with trump's election what's going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years what's going to happen when the entire base for trump is going to be disaffected if Trump loses to some Democrat who then takes over for another four to eight years. What are they going to glom onto after that? What are, who are they waiting for? Are they waiting for a full-blown, honest-to-God, ideologically clear fascist to emerge? Because I can assure you right now, there are a lot of people in the United States who have their eyes on political careers in the next 10 to 20 years who are watching what Trump is doing. The success that he's had in transforming the very politics in this country, and they're going to say, I can do that better than he can. I can go more extreme. I could go more to the right. I could marshal the serious, openly racist, openly Nazi forces, and I can do it with a smile in a nice suit, and I can sound better and look better than Trump, and I can sell it to these people because they are going to buy whatever the hell I sell because of what the other side is doing. See, this is the back and forth game that we're caught in, and until the left and the grassroots movements are able to present a coherent and viable alternative, one that is at once political but also economic and social and cultural in its orientation, uh, until we can do that, building, for lack of a better term, building an independent politics, until we can do that, we are going to see us slide further and further down in increasingly dangerous circles of hell. <laughs> Very well put. Um, I, f I feel like we should probably wrap it up here unless um, you wanted to end with any final points or um well one one final point i want to make is that uh people shouldn't take this entire conversation and say well fuck it i'm just going to build a bunker and that's the end of this you know i think that that's a mistake i think that uh rather what people need to do is they need to be involved in building independent political and economic uh, infrastructure in their communities and in the country, broadly speaking, that that can take many different forms. Uh, we have uh, historical antecedents that we can look at, whether the Black Panther Party survival programs, you know, in the community, whether we can we can point to a number of initiatives going on right now, including you know grassroots uh, you know activism, uh, grassroots economic development, such as Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, such as a number. Of of other examples where people in their communities are saying I'm not I'm not going to focus on you know democrat and republican I'm going to focus on figuring out a way to make sure that the people in my community have food to eat good food to eat have access to information access to technology access to healthcare things like that that is going to become increasingly important as the political climate and the economic climate deteriorates 
Nobody is interested in talking politics when their children are hungry. Nobody is interested in opposing the government in Washington if they have to be wary of the people who live down the street from them. You see, this is part of the game that's being played until people understand that it's going to require independent political and economic infrastructure, meaning owning and controlling the means of production themselves, owning and controlling their access to water, to food, to, 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 to whatever you may, you know, technology, information, whatever that looks like. I could point to a thousand different initiatives, community broadband programs, urban agricultural development, uh, the creation of solidarity networks, the creation of charity institutions, a million examples that we could look at that are all political in nature, that are part of building resistance and resilient communities. That's what people really need to take away from all of this because so many people, including a lot of decent people, bought this idea that somebody from the outside was going to come in and was going to change things. And there you see Donald Trump, somebody from the outside coming in. Not only is he not changing things, he's making them drastically worse. That is the wake-up call that I hope people get. Where we'll put Eric... And um, I'm glad we ended it on a some, somewhat positive note um, because I think a lot of, at least what I do, um, is, you know, critiquing the system and uh, we need more alternatives and more sort of paths forward um, through this fucking disaster. <laughs> Think about what think about what you can do for yourself and for your family and then make that broader. Think about for your community. Think about what are the challenges that people face in your community. What do they need on a daily basis in order to get them to then you know, uh, uh, do the same thing for others in other communities. If we can create even one example, one truly successful example, that can then be imported in many other places, both in the United States and around the world. The danger is that we're running out of time. And I hope people get that out of all of this, that the, that the window for true resistance is closing. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Eric. And, Thanks for uh, having me. I hope we can uh, have this conversation again when um, uh, when we see how this is uh, all going to evolve. I guess um, we're only two weeks in, and you know we have so many things to talk about. And I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about. You know, a hundred days in. So let's okay. do this again. Let's hope we live that long. Absolutely. <laughs> Th thank you. Thanks, Robbie. <laughs>